Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast that discusses current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues in pharmacy. I'm your host, Carly McMore, and together with my producer, Jared McMore, and the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, we are bringing you a podcast that draws on the opinions and expertise of pharmacists from all settings and experience levels, from those pharmacists who've already been a voice in the profession to those who've never had their voice heard before. In this two-part episode, we discuss pain management, the impact of scheduling change on the industry, and how people access pain treatment and the need to separate population-wide policy decisions from the individual care that people with pain deserve. Chris Campbell describes how chronic pain is undertreated, and while pharmacists are only part of the solution, it requires empathy and individualised care. I could talk about the role that pharmacists play in pain management for a long time, so make sure you're reining me in if I go too long. Um, But what I know is that we have such a large burden um, from chronic pain and such a under-treatment of chronic pain uh, that pharmacists themselves are not going to solve the problem, um, but they do need to be in to that multidisciplinary team to start to make a dent. Um, I think one of the positives of the codeine scheduling change is that every single pharmacist I speak to is hyper-aware of the role that they can play in pain management. Um, so if we... Uh, are to to continue to make that din. It's about connecting into the multidisciplinary teams. Um, When we talk about chronic pain and other conditions, um, 30 to 40% will have depression. Mm -hmm. And so we cannot just look at one subset and um, not think about the patient as a whole. Um, Or if we don't address uh, the potential of substance use disorder, we have someone in chronic pain who, by no fault or no intent, has been taking a medication that just so happens to lead that way. Uh, Pharmacists are in a position to have a role there. Um, What we're finding and the feedback we're getting from patients who uh, may have been having conversations with pharmacists that have been quite truncated is that pharmacists ask me 50 million questions, stop with the questions. Uh, there's a wonderful, um, and maybe you could link this on, on the site where um, the Chronic Pain um, Australia or, um, into, or they did a survey, Chronic Pain Australia uh, was 1,200 patients and they asked them their perception of community pharmacy and I think it's really telling and it's... And, although so difficult to read and and listen to some of the feedback of the patients, that that feedback's real. And when we show empathy and we connect in that way, um, we can open up a whole uh, list of treatments for them. Um, What I I find really interesting is uh, our pharmacists, and particularly community pharmacists who feel like they're solo practitioners, that is so far from the case. We will in no doubt have a psychologist that work close to us, a GP that's actively referring to that psychologist, and that patient just happens to see us. We're part of a multidisciplinary team, whether we know it or not. And if we are able to connect in and, and at least explain that journey, it could be around exercise. It could be referring to an exercise physiologist or even knowing how that happens and knowing what the expectation of that other health professional is. So you're not just focusing on, and I totally agree with you, it's not just about the medications. And we know that that's not evidence-based, particularly in chronic pain. If you had pain for more than three to six months, 
inevitably something else happening. So if a pharmacist is able to understand that whole pathway and see the expectations of a patient and help um, help foster the that collaborative care, you can make so much larger impact. And imagine then getting referrals back from other health professionals. So we have a... a, a service um, that's part of our fifth or sixth community pharmacy agreement uh, called State Supply. And so one of the things that we hear from GPs is uh, who are in a scenario where they feel forced to prescribe an opioid is that we don't have time to start addressing substance use disorder. I don't have... I've got six minutes with this patient. To know that there's an opportunity to say, okay, you're here for six minutes... I'm not too, not too sure if they'd use those words to the patient, but you're here for a short consult. What I'd like you to do is I'm going to prescribe two days at a time. You can take that to Jared. Jared is a pharmacist just down the road. Uh, I, I've booked you in for a longer consult so we can work together to help you manage your pain. I can guarantee a lot of GPs don't know that that's offered in a community pharmacy and it's a, a way to assist um, that level of care, particularly if they're worried about dose escalation. If we look at depression and, and connection with chronic pain, if they were worried about a patient that could be intentionally um, overdosing, knowing those other services available in, in the community could be so helpful. Mm-hmm. So, so we're un- massively untapped um, opportunity in community pharmacy um, in particular. We have pain centres, so tertiary pain centres, uh, that are at capacity. So near my pharmacies, it takes two years to get into the chronic pain service. So what's a patient going to do during that time? It is, it is imperative that we start to offer solutions in our communities and start to have those empathetic discussions. Shane Jackson addresses the poor nature in which pain is generally handled and that when pharmacists focus on the person in pain rather than the regulations around medicines, better outcomes can be achieved. So uh, my first comment around pain management is that we just don't do that very well as a, as a society. Um, and it goes from patients themselves through to um, health professionals caring for them and the systems in which we work. So that's the first thing. It's just not done very well. But given that medications are a key part of the interventions that we actually have for pain management. Pharmacists, again, as the custodians of medicine safety, um, have a key role to play in that. They're accessible, so if you look at it from a community pharmacy perspective, they're accessible and they're often talking to people about pain management much more frequently than any other healthcare professional. It's about framing how is your pain and is there anything else that I can do that might assist that not from a reactive point of view in how are your medicines going. No, it's about you and how you're managing your pain. And so I think framing the questions always around how that person's chronic medical condition is affecting them and their life and how you might be able to tailor your expertise, generally the expertise around medicines, uh, to improve that is, is a key role. The pharmacists, uh, you know, it's just, just the brief interventions, the brief consultations that might occur on a monthly basis when somebody's collecting pain medicines, framing it that, like that. Then I think that there's a, a really a, a quite a high-level clinical custodial role around um, the medicine safety, especially around opioids. 
Uh, I think we need to have a pharmacist, especially in the community setting, need to have a much greater impact on appropriate prescribing uh, of uh, opioids. I look at things like opioid rotation, for example, where you have patients that you know that are taking you know, quite large doses of opioids and have been for a long period of time. And we know that there's significant evidence that says for most patients, not all patients, for most patients, especially for chronic non-cancer pain, the use of opioids probably doesn't actually improve the situation for most patients. So it's that consideration to talk to um, patients with pain around you know, what, what are we doing on a, on a long-term basis. And opioid rotation can help with that. It can certainly often reduce the, the, um, the opioid load that a, that a person might be taking. But again, it's just about conversations and it's about applying expertise, but it's about actually having the systems in place to be able to enable that as well. That's where I'm quite positive that the, the pain meds check trial um, will actually allow pharmacists, again, it's about consultations, sitting down, discussing with the patient, focused around a specific uh, chronic medical condition and trying to identify uh, education needs, making sure that medicine's adherence, whether it be underuse, overuse or misuse, is a key component of that, but also trying to identify whether there's any clinical medication-related problems that the pharmacist can give advice to or about. Uh, the paternalistic or paternalism in healthcare is palpable. Right? It always has been. What we need to do is, you know, it's hard to transform, but what we can do is transition. Graeme Smith describes codeine scheduling in New Zealand and how this focuses on the harms caused by combination ingredients. Well, we've got a proposal that went to the Medicines Reclassification Committee to make combination products with codeine, that's codeine with paracetamol or codeine with ibuprofen prescription only, but to make 15 milligrams of codeine by itself available as a pharmacist-only medicine for up to, I think it's three-day supply. And the rationale behind that, of course, is that most of the harm that's done with the combination products is either to the liver with the paracetamol or the gut with the ibuprofen. So in this situation, pharmacists will actually be able to recommend codeine by itself, but in combination when appropriate. The combination products at the moment are what we call pharmacist-only medicine, so the sale must be made by a pharmacist and there has to be a record of the consultation with, as a minimum, the patient's name and address. It's not at this stage a real-time record that can be shared with anybody and that's been one of the drawbacks because with the, with the codeine shoppers, and we know that there are codeine shoppers about. Well, we've recently got a, a, I don't know if you'd call it a ruling or if it was just a common-sense conversation took place between the, the police and the Minister of Health and provided that we now put a sign up which says that if you're purchasing certain products, um, information will be recorded and in the interests of your safety may be shared, um, we can now share that information. And that, that's just in recent times how we've been able to become aware of the, of the fact that there are a, a small number of people buying a large amount of codeine. Okay. Michael Troy and Jared McMoore discuss the way in which all health professionals have contributed to poor use of low-dose codeine and how changes to scheduling reflects the professionalism of pharmacists. Um, I was quite disappointed that it was upscheduled. Um, you use, well, ABC's fact check, um, which uh, I think has, has got some very good evidence as to the flawed evidence that was used by the TGA 
um, about the upscheduling of codeine. Um, I do believe it still should be accessible to our customers as an acute analgesic. Um, I look at myself as a case example. Um, ibuprofen, NSAIDs contraindicated with me. Um, they play with my asthma, play with my reflux. Um, so uh, there are times when paracetamol just doesn't cut the mustard. Um, and actually this morning with my headache, I'd really like two Panadine 15s um, just to take the edge off this headache that I currently have, um, but not available. Um, you know, I, I, that's me as one person in the population who does need... You know, I don't want to go to a doctor's, get a script, whatever, um, and there's all those other population groups that NSAIDs, for whatever reason, are contraindicated. Um, we're just creating an extra burden on the healthcare system, and I really personally don't think that particularly with uh, meds assist um, that codeine abuse was as big an issue as some of the, the media outlets were portraying or some of the advocates for the upscheduling were portraying um, pharmacists are incredibly capable medication experts um, we should be the gatekeeper to medications um, and I've seen some very inappropriate prescribing of codeine post pre, but definitely post um, post 1st of February um, so there's I've got no evidence that there are doc uh, doctors out there any more capable than we are um, yes I do believe that something like you know if we were to go back that meds assist should be a legislated requirement um, in each state and territory that all sales must go through it but we've got um, a very good case example of pseudoephedrine and what Project Stop has done um, in terms of limiting the supply of, of pseudoephedrine and pseudo-runners. So we've got proof that we can do it, we've got proof that we can control it, and we've got population groups that need acute pain relief that now can't access it. Um, that's more Medicare swipes. Um, that's, yeah, creating more health burdens than it's actually solving. Um, uh, yeah. I'd agree with that. Um, I agree with most of what you've actually said there. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that... Um, uh, let's just say that the access to medication as an OTC product was not really being driven by recommendations by pharmacists and not really being driven by patient requests. It was very much being driven by advice that patients have been given for, for years and years and years, like decades, that, oh, you know, this is going to be appropriate for your pain. You don't need a script for this, just go buy it. And that becomes, you know, the sort of standard pattern of behaviour, including, unfortunately, plenty of people who are given advice to purchase over-the-counter codeine products for chronic pain. Advice coming from doctors for that. You know, it's not a, it's not an ideal situation. And and realistically, restricting access to address that particular issue is um, a very very blunt tool. Um, very interesting at the moment that there's considerations to make all codeine containing products above 12 milligrams to schedule 8 oh dear. Yes. and it's interesting to see that the very same arguments that pharmacy groups were using to say we should not be restricting access to OTC products are now being used by those who disagreed with that point they're now using those same exact arguments around keeping other codeine products scheduled for um, it's very, very telling. Um, 
I mean, to go back a little bit first, I, the other issue I have is that, so S3, that's our domain, um, pharmacist only. As they keep, you know, take codeine away from S3, our front of shop gets so much closer to a supermarket. I mean, purely speculative. speculative. Um, who was the initial person pushing TGA for the upshifting of codeine? Was that lobbying done, being done by the Coles and Woolworths of the world um, to limit the differ- differentiating? Um, yeah, so like, you know, was there a push there for, for to, to limit and you know, change, reduce the differentiation between the pharmacy and the, the Colesworths of the world? Um, but the talk of upscheduling again from S4 to S8, well, practically first, my safe is not big enough. Um, actually, my safe's pure practicality, my safe's not big enough. Um, secondly, why 12, point, 12 milligrams and over and then they're still under 12s? And then you look at the case example in what New Zealand are do, uh, looking at doing with their scheduling um, in that combination products are going prescription, um, paracetamol, codeine, ibuprofen, codeine. Codeine on its own is getting down scheduled to pharmacist only with other um, real-time monitoring and those kind of things being put in place. So here's a case example of, of what we should, we, Australia, should be looking at potentially doing. I'm sure the Guild is looking at the model and, and, and watching it very closely, but, you know, yeah, no, I'm very anti the upscheduling of codeine. And it's made an impact on my business. Um, the analgesic sector has diminished in terms of price. It was quite a profitable area at the pharmacy, um, which you know, kind of feed from one to the other, and you know that's where well, we can go. Well, the profits from the S3 are paying for my free deliveries that I send out every week, every day of the week. Um, yeah. Tina Blafari and Lily Pham from NAPSA talk about the scheduling change decision and what this and the low uptake of medicists says about pharmacists' capacity to deliver quality healthcare. I guess on the coding rescheduling, I think it's not so much the um, I think it's not so much the kind of scheduling up of coding as opposed to what that represents for a field. I think in that kind of move from making it, you know, it needs to be prescription, you have um, our field almost discredited, pharmacists discredited for their clinical ability to distinguish who needs medication when. Um, and I think if, as kind of a healthcare profession, we need to be known as the medication experts and in that should come slight opportunities to be able to distinguish which patient needs it and which patient doesn't. Um, I do think, though, it is a little bit of a double-sided argument in the fact that did we not have enough faith in ourselves to correctly make that call and say yes or no at the right time? And then because we didn't have faith in ourselves as a profession, we've seen it kind of spiral into let's take away their clinical ability. I think also, again, with the whole remuneration aspect and expanding our scope of practice, um, the I believe it was February the 1st, 2018, was when that came into play with the upscheduling of codeine. That really took, took kind of a back step because we're fighting and we're, we're trying to expand our scope of practice and yet we're, we weren't really very vocal about the fact that we were upscheduling something that is so often used within pharmacy. Um, and we saw Meds Assist implemented as a trial um, and that didn't gather very 
successful uptake overall. But I think that if we try to argue and fight for the implementation of that again, but nationally and compulsory, just like the project stop, that would make a huge difference and we'd be able to reclaim that um, scope of practice that we have as well. So I think that's quite important that we, we, we kind of look into that sector again and look into us being, again, medicine experts in pain management especially. At the end of the day, it comes down to weighing up that risk versus benefit. And sometimes, yes, a patient's on quite high doses of opioids, mm. but that might be beneficial for their quality of life. And so who are we as clinicians to say that they're not entitled to that? And policymakers the same. Mm. Each case needs to be individual and that's how it needs to be taken. It can't be a general kind of every single patient on opioids needs to be reduced. It needs to be let's evaluate each of those patients and see what will provide them with the best outcome. Because mm. um, there's no point stripping someone of medication that gets them through day by day because that can have massive repercussions in itself that you're going to have to pick up the pieces with sooner or later. Catherine Duggan discusses the importance of having honest conversations with people about the risks versus benefits of pain medications, remembering that pain comes from different sources and affects people differently. I'm not an expert in the Australian system here, but I think um, we could do a lot wrong or a lot worse than becoming an expert in this area. So somebody who is living with pain will tend to try most things that they can get their hands on because that is a very um, mentally and physically wearing condition to be in. Um, And I think we need to have honest conversations with patients. I think the pharmacist is ideally placed to do this and look at their life in the round and to help with medicines, whether those are prescribed or non-prescribed. Make sure that the patient understands that a cocktail, if it's finely tuned, could probably enhance that pain relief. But if it's just slightly wonky will give them really bad effects and cause them long-term damage potentially. Um, I think we, we don't have an honest conversation with patients and the public about why certain medicines are regulated in certain ways um, and we know that patients will take anything at a point in time um, that they can without necessarily understanding that they might not, that might not be the right mix. So I'm speaking very generically there. Obviously we would, we would understand um, with prescriptions in front of us. That's not so much my worry. Um, I think the prescription is just one element of the pain relief, and we know that people will be self-medicating like crazy on top. And the way we know that is ourselves. How do we react to pain of any type of our own and how we play around with those medicines and we are pharmacists ourselves, you know, so... If you've got chronic pain, how do you handle that versus if you've got a stabbing headache or a migraine? And do you follow all the advice that is on the labels and that you know to be really true yourself? So why why aren't we thinking like that when we get round the table with the patient? Um, and you mentioned earlier on about the, you know, thinking about conditions in isolation, but there's nothing more depressing for an individual than chronic, long-term, unending pain. And I think you would try and dull that in whichever way you could, really. So I don't know the specifics about the Australian um, system, but I think pharmacists as the pain management experts would be a really good thing to shout about, as long as we are competent in that arena. But I think it's something that would a patient immediately know to come and have a chat with a pharmacist and have a proper in-depth consultation about the pain they're having 
the stage of pain they're at and how they're managing that. Sandra Minnes and Ravi Sharma talk about the importance of evidence when considering both benefit and potential harms of pain medicines and how this should inform access. Um, I think, I guess, from uh, the future generation of pharmacist perspective or as a student, uh, most of these decisions that are made um, are not just made on a whim and they come about um, through research and um, determining the best outcome for patients healthcare Uh, so I guess where I stand personally is that um, codeine rescheduling was um, or came about for the benefit of patients um, health and pain management uh, and that's I guess yeah my view. So uh, simple codeine on its own is not available as an over-the-counter or P-line, i.e., um, but there are combined therapies that can be. So cocodamol in particular you can buy over-the-counter, but only at a dose of 8 milligrams to 500 milligrams paracetamol. Um, the rest of it would be a, a, a prescription-only medicine, for instance. We've seen changes in tramadol legislation, and I think that's probably right. We know tramadol is a uh, can be have a lot of side effects for individuals and can cause... Uh, significant amount of, of dependence and that's been upregulated to a control drug now uh, and it's up the schedule now and we have to prescribe it and ensure that we're prescribing it safely from a general practice perspective and that we work with our community pharmacy colleagues to identify areas and where we think it could be being prescribed unsafely and work as collaboratively to try and address issues where appropriate but also to support patients who are have been suffering from pain management and who have depended on tramadol for their for its use for a number of years and so supporting them around what are the other options to helping them manage their pain better do we need to support them from a you know from a social care perspective but as well as a healthcare perspective Renee Beardmore describes how ineffective low dose codeine is for pain and that changing prescribing habits for all health professionals is needed to ensure pain relief is used more effectively in the future codeine is an ineffective pain management medication if codeine went in front of the TGA today it would not be registered, is my firm opinion. And so um, my experience as a regulator at state level, where we I was um, for a period of time chief pharmacist of ACT Health, and we spend a lot of our time, we had an online system, DAPIS, the same system that Tasmania has, and when you see the impact on everyday people and the over-prescribing that is just rife um, within um, our community, um, codeine just added an additional layer of complexity to that. And we were really only dealing with the control medicines. And when you've got Schedule 4 codeine and then you had Schedule 3 codeine, it was was really, um, I think, you know, it's the best outcome for patients. Um, And the more interventions that we can do, like the pain medication checks, to assist them in their journey away from using opioids to manage their chronic pain is what we need to be doing. My concern is having pharmacists, having been the regulator with a legislative framework behind me to be able to say to GPs that you can't prescribe in this manner, it's completely inappropriate, and having GPs push back, I'm concerned that pharmacists will be also... Um, unable to have those very difficult conversations. You know, it's like that methotrexate example. 
you know, if you've got, you know, a pharmacist ringing up a GP saying, you know, I've worked out the morphine equivalents of what you're giving a patient and, you know, it's, you know, in excess of 200 morphine equivalents a day, it's inappropriate, you know, under the CDC guidelines, Australian College of Pain, you know, or any RACGP pain management guidelines, um, most pharmacists would know that there would be a level of displeasure <laughs> with some GPs at the other end. So we really need to equip pharmacists to be... A- it's important to have that difficult conversation. You should not shy away from it. Um, and what we need to have almost... Uh, strategies for having an effective conversation to convert prescribing behaviour. Kay Dunkley talks about the importance of real-time prescription monitoring in assisting health professionals with clinical decisions. With regard to um, pain management and the purchase of analgesics over the counter, I think it's a very complex area. I certainly think that as a profession we weren't necessarily addressing the situation very well in terms of the risks of um, misuse of these products however I'm not sure that it's better addressed by transferring them to being schedule four because I think probably what's happening um, is that the people who are using these are just now using stronger forms of pain relief and I also think we have to allow the community to take some level of responsibility for the purchase of being able to purchase minor analgesics and I really think that the concept of real-time monitoring is the solution here rather than schedule changing but also even for those who do have a problem I think access to treatment services become a, a significant issue and that people who have a problem with codeine addiction uh, find it very difficult to actually uh, seek treatment for that there's not there's a real lack of access or lack of availability to services which can support them and help them manage that and I think we really need to look at uh, the bigger picture rather than just a scheduling change we actually need to look at you know consumer empowerment and the ability to look after their own medications and also we need to look at the access of people to treatment services when they do develop a problem and we also need to just avoid, you know, sort of a, seems to me a very reactive change. And certainly the data that was used to make these decisions, it seemed to it, that it wasn't actually focused on over-the-counter pain relief. It was actually including Schedule 4 products and a lot of the decisions may have been made by, based on inaccurate data or data that didn't really reflect what was going on and as I said ultimately real-time monitoring would have addressed that situation. I think the sooner we have real-time monitoring the better. Joyce McSwan discusses the importance of rationalising opioid use, ensuring that those who have been utilising these medicines are not abandoned based on policy and keeping individualised care paramount. It's a massive issue opioid management and I think the biggest word at the moment Um, is to adopt a rationalised practice. Why we want to use that, that is a very, very important word because that means that those who need it will continue to get it. Those who do not need it will have a chance at being helped to reduce, so to speak. Those who unfortunately have the reality of now being so adapted to continue to need it despite trialling 
um, to reduce it per, per se will be, you know, given the, the reality, both from a clinical support point of view, prescribing point of view, uh, and, um, you know, emotional support point of view, all the biopsychosocial needs of care, that they'll be provided you know, the ability to access it without stigmatisation. So I think, look, we've, we've got to come clean as healthcare professionals at looking at the bull in the eye and go, frankly, yeah, it's a mess. We did what we could when we thought it was right. At the time of practice, science has now changed. It's taught us that it's now no longer useful um, because, you know, we certainly have a bit more evidence now, a lot more evidence now to show that, look, it's, it's, it's reached, you know, a point where it's really not conducive to care anymore. So then we've got to try and correct that. So it's, it's a very big prism here, but I think rationalisation, what we must avoid, so that's the what we should do. What we must avoid in the process of this rationalisation, which isn't easy because we're dealing with, obviously, humans. Humans are complex (laughs) Um, from, you know, the prescriber to the dispenser to the patient to the carer. But what we need to be very cautious about is to not be reactive and defensive in our practice. Like that is critical because if we panic as much as the patients panic, then who's going to be helping who? So unfortunately... Um, you know, guidelines are great, but unfortunately, they're very black and white. And I think that grey element is starting to kind of, you know, have to come in a little bit. Um, it, while guidelines are black and white, um, people aren't. And obviously, there are, you know, m- many, many important reasons to try and um, try and try and customize as well and individualize because otherwise we're not going to get outcomes we're going to get very boxed answers which is just not going to be helpful so um to to any anyone and one of the biggest concerns out of defensive practice and reactive practice is truly the patient's quality of life you know um and mental health issues related secondarily to that because that usually breeds fear and fear you know, can inadvertently um, create secondary comorbidities that you're trying to avoid in the first place. So it's it's very case by case. Has you know, you have to be very skilled. Um, you've got to have support around you, including you, the prescriber, <laughs> or you, the dispensing um, pharmacist. And that's that's why I think working as a team, um, collaboration, even though it's such a popular word, I don't think it's well practiced. Um, or well understood to how to practice in that way. So I think that needs to be, you know, fostered as well. Yeah. Carolyn Huxhagen describes how codeine scheduling needs to be seen as an opportunity to improve pain management overall and that tools like pain's meds checks need to be seen as a partnership. Yep. So I predominantly work in the pain space and have done for many years and um, having been the clinical uh, coordinator for a, a support group for patients um, work, living and working with pain, been a very eye-opening experience for me. So, for me, uh, the changes with the coding um, upscheduling and that was a an opportunity to really drill down and look at how pain should be managed in community pharmacy and in, within my consulting work, and also then to form alliances with others so that I gave my patients a better um, program 
And I've done that predominantly because the pharmacy that I manage is in a what's called a GP super clinic. So we've gone and actively worked with the physiotherapist and the podiatrist and the GPs to um, look at how we can deal with the codeine problem and that the patients will be wanting things. And, and we put a lot of work into upskilling ourselves as well as uh, then having a format to talk to the patients with. And I think we actually achieved... Um, the patients don't um, actively get angry with us about the coding changes. We've really worked hard to make sure they understood it and what we could offer. Uh, I think pain meds check is a, an opportunity to really show our expertise and to, to bring it together. We've put a lot of work into writing the guidelines to make sure that pharmacists realise it is a partnership to manage those patients. So um, I, I see pain meds check as an opportunity for pharmacy. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast.